Moments ago, Mark Zuckerberg announced it will extend the block on President Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts indefinitely. Then Apple, Google and Amazon cut off Parler, a social media site popular with Trump supporters. The social network Parler is suing Amazon after it was booted from the company's web hosting services. You control almost 90 percent of all general search engine queries, 70 percent of the search advertising market. Don't you see these practices as anti-competitive? Last month, the feds and 46 states sued Facebook for anti-competitive behavior. Google is also under fire. Now to the blockbuster antitrust lawsuit against Google tonight, the Justice Department accusing the tech giant of being a monopoly gatekeeper for the internet. Big tech has brought back our fear of big corporations. But this fear is not new. Policies to combat monopolies date back to the robber baron era. People hated these companies. I mean, they just hated Standard Oil. They hated the Whiskey Trust. They hated all of these companies. Companies like Standard Oil, American Tobacco, and the so-called Beef Trust, organized by Swift and Company in the early 1900s. Antitrust laws were meant to prevent companies from restraining competition or forming monopolies. You can have a product that is dominant, but people kind of hate Right. You, people might have enjoyed joining Facebook when they did. But if Facebook has gotten worse in some way, but there's no other way to communicate with all their Facebook friends, not one person can unilaterally leave a platform uh, because of the network effects. You'd lose all the benefits of it. In this episode of The Pie, we'll talk about the emergence of corporate goliaths roaming the world economy. How urgent is this problem? This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie. How it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of today. And in this episode, we're going to look at the economics of big tech and what it's doing to competition. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. I talked with Eric Posner, a distinguished service professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School, and Chad Syverson, a distinguished service professor of economics at Chicago Booth School of Business. So let me start w- with you, Eric. Looks like the day of reckoning for big tech is at hand. You've been following these Goliaths for some time. Why now? Have we suddenly realized that these kind of technological behemoths pose a big risk to society? Um, What do you think is going on? I think part of what's going on is that a new technology or a set of new technologies have created an immense disruption in the economy and, and how we do things. I've really been struck by the similarities between the backlash against big tech and the backlash against the big trusts like Standard Oil in the 19th century, which led to the enactment of the antitrust laws in 1890. The change in technology has produced these absolutely enormous, powerful companies, which are very difficult um, to understand. And then the impact of these companies on people's everyday lives are quite visible. They were in the case of Standard Oil, and they are today with Google and Facebook. With respect to tech, there was tremendous optimism 20 years ago, 
10 years ago. But in recent years, people have begun to worry about privacy, the power of these uh, tech companies to control the national conversation, the possibility that they can disrupt the political system. And then, of course, just the conventional worries that they might ultimately result in higher prices, uh, worse products, and so forth. Again, echoing exactly what happened in the 19th century. Uh, So I think what historians will say in the future is that what happened in the 1990s was uh, a kind of an economic revolution on par with the revolution that occurred in the uh, mid to late 19th century. And it took a while for people to perceive how rapidly this revolution would change our lives. But once that happened, there was a tremendous amount of public support for some kind of policy response. Yeah. Yeah. Chad, you've been looking very carefully at the uh, kind of economic damage that market concentration can do across the economy. Does tech warrant some sort of special treatment? I think Your question raises a couple points, one of which is, okay, what is the policy mechanism that we would want to use to address any concerns we would have? I think that some of the issue here might not be antitrust per se. It's just a notion that large companies have an amount of of power, and it's not necessarily market power. It's political power. It's cultural power, whatever, that some people think need to be balanced out better. And I think just saying, well let's do antitrust policy better and our, the problem will be solved, I think is is not quite the right way to think about it. Because if you ask people to enumerate the specific things they're concerned about, some of that isn't really about antitrust. There is an antitrust issue. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist, but I think it's it's broader than that. And, and the other is, you know, concentration. I've spent the last couple of years trying to explain to people concentration per se isn't necessarily the bad thing about market power. It's an, it's an outcome and it can be an outcome tied to market more market power or it can be an outcome tied to less market power. So I, I don't think you just want to look at, hey, is there a big company in the, in the industry and say things have gone wrong? If so, you want to ask yourself, why is the company big and why is it staying big? Why is it possible for new competitors who can do things better to come into the industry or not? That's a very debatable issue in tech for many reasons, but I think it's useful to to keep that in mind as well. Right. And, and let me make a quick point here. So take something like the fact that Facebook has a, a big impact on political debate. It could be a platform through which Americans d- disseminate false information. It could be a vehicle through which foreign countries influence political debate in the United States. It could be a way that certain groups might be able to obtain power uh, over political outcomes. So these are all worries that we wouldn't normally think of as antitrust worries. Maybe you would say we should have stronger campaign finance laws or you know, other laws that try to minimize corruption or, or something like that as a way to more directly address this type of political power that Facebook has. The problem is, though, that the kind of obvious responses like those are themselves constrained. They're constrained by the First Amendment of the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court. 
And so I think some people have recently been thinking about antitrust law in its 19th century sense as a way of going after just very large businesses that have too much power. If you can't regulate the speech on platforms, for example, because of the First Amendment, you may nonetheless be able to make progress by uh, breaking up the very largest platforms and uh, reintroducing a type of competition. And I think that makes the, the role of antitrust law a lot more complicated in this setting. So, so, so Eric, Chad, uh, right now I think it would be really useful to uh, step back and, and maybe talk about the evolution of our thought about, you know, competition, uh, monopoly power, concentration, and so forth. This, this kind of intellectual evolution of our thinking about competition over time, and, and importantly, where this has left us. Eric, I think you've written that policy was sort of asleep at the wheel, right? Yes. So that, that is definitely my view. So 19th century view, I mean, it's actually kind of amusing and, and it's striking in light of the backlash against big tech. People hated these companies. I mean, they just hated Standard Oil. They hated the Whiskey Trust. They hated all of these companies. And the reasons they gave were, you know, all kinds of things. It wasn't just higher prices because, after all, they actually lowered prices. And But they were big and they bullied people and they had too much political influence and they acted in a secretive way. So the lesson that came out of that was, you know, something like big is bad. You know, we, we should be suspicious of enormous firms. That is not really a good legal standard to think about the problem of competition now, up until the 1970s, this kind of big as bad view persisted, but the actual cases were you know, more complicated and there was this kind of big as bad element to these cases, but over time began to focus more on the type of economic harms that, that it's actually reducing output relative to what a competitive economy would produce and it's increasing prices. And then by the 1970s, economists and uh, law professors who were influenced by economists began to persuade the Supreme Court to incorporate these insights into the law. And so a big part of the development of antitrust law in the last 50 years has simply been a greater level of economic sophistication connected with a narrower but, you know, plausible sense of what antitrust law can actually accomplish. So as Chad says, you don't want to just get rid of all the big companies. You want to get rid of the companies that are causing economic harm. The, the, the one thing that concerns me, and then I think concerns a lot of people today, is that in the course of producing this more economically sophisticated body of law, there was also this skepticism generated about how much antitrust law can actually accomplish. And so starting in the 70s and 80s, not only was antitrust law made more sophisticated, but it was also made narrower. People began to think that, yeah, it's true, monopolies are bad, you know, often, but sometimes they do good things. And in any event, they don't last very long because once you're charging above market prices, a lot of people are going to want to get in and undermine you. Maybe cartels aren't very good at uh, maintaining their power because they have to act sec secretively. And so all of these doubts arose about whether markets really did tend toward concentration or monopoly, as people thought in the 19th century, or whether they were self-correcting. And at the same time, there was increasing skepticism about whether the government 
in the form of antitrust laws or through regulators could do a better job in any event at limiting monopoly or, or bringing back competition. So I do think, you know, starting in, I don't know, maybe the 80s or the 90s, there was maybe too much optimism that markets would produce good outcomes and too much skepticism about whether the government could do anything about that. So with respect to just regular markets, I do think that you could say that antitrust has been asleep in the sense that people were just not aggressive enough at addressing increasing consolidation. And that ultimately leads us to where we are today. That said, big tech strikes me as a somewhat different aspect of this problem. I think big tech is a little more of a challenge. You probably remember in the 90s, the initial view about tech was that it was going to cause an immense amount of decentralization rather than centralization. The opposite has been the case, but people couldn't uh, anticipate that. In the last few years, it's become increasingly clear that big tech poses an antitrust problem as well as these other types of problems. Like Eric mentioned, antitrust policies started changing in the 1980s. Economists started asking the government to be more precise about exactly what sort of economic harm they were trying to prevent. This forced policy into a narrower track. And now we're at another inflection point. After the break, we'll discuss what remedies are available for the government to manage big tech's ongoing power surge. There is another paradigm shift afoot, with lots of people suggesting that anti-monopoly policy has gotten way too narrow. The rise of tech goliaths is only part of the changing paradigm. Analysts are seeing other signs that the economy may be becoming less competitive as all kinds of big companies control more of their markets. The fear is that big companies are holding wages down and making it more difficult for new companies to enter the marketplace, reducing economic dynamism. The thing I, I tend to look at is like, what ha- what's, what's going on with entry and potential entry in the industry? Is it is it possible and plausible that a competitor who does things better than an incumbent or the incumbents can come into an industry and replace that incumbent or at least discipline the incumbent's behavior? If you can measure that, that sort of to me is the summary metric of how well competition is working in an industry. And I think that specific instance, as applied to tech, is a useful way to think about how you know, the more recent views of antitrust, even within the sort of harm paradigm that that Eric was mentioning, are expanding. And in particular, I think this new view towards the so-called killer acquisitions, where you have an incumbent buy up a very small firm in the industry, so small that, you know, they're basically having no consequence on the market outcomes currently. I think the view of antitrust 15, 20 years ago was, okay, that producer's tiny. There's not going to be any uh, additional market power coming from that acquisition, and so nobody worried about it. Now people recognize, I think, that no, that's not, that's not the right way to think about it. That small company could be a very large competitor and maybe perhaps, you know, maybe it's not next year or two years, but five, 10 years down the line. 
And that's part of, you know, I think what people talk about, for example, in the Facebook WhatsApp case is that WhatsApp was this tiny little thing when Facebook bought it. Yet Facebook might have bought it precisely because they were worried about potential future competition. It's not just about bigness. We have to measure harm when we think about antitrust. That all fits within that. It's just, it was a set of circumstances that I think policy people didn't worry about so much before, but now are starting to recognize have potential competitive harms and have begun paying more attention to it. And if you look around at the tech landscape, there's a lot of markets that seem to be owned by one company, you know, Facebook or Google or Amazon or Apple. And, and I wondered, is tech different in a way that's kind of like the markets are going to be naturally monopolized? I think that's right in broad strokes. The network effects, to oversimplify it a bit, which is basically being big gives you an inherent advantage. Network effects are more common in tech markets. And many of these network effects are platform-based, which are also common in, in tech markets. And so, you know, that's that's not a new economic idea, but in terms of just the frequency with which it manifests itself, it's much more common in tech. And what that means is if you can get, you know, through market power or some other mechanism, even a modest advantage at an early point in the industry, you can basically take over or at least grow to significant dominance inside the industry. So I think that is kind of what's different. Again, it's not really new economics, but it's just much more likely to happen in these kind of markets. That and the fact that innovation is high in the industry. And of course, we think that Productivity growth comes from innovation, and productivity growth in the long run is really the only source of increased living standards. So if the main industry that's supposed to be moving us forward as an economy is susceptible to market power in this special way, then, yeah, it should get special attention. And I think that's why I view tech as being being different. And so could you just like help us understand this idea of network effects? Is it like the, the kind of thing when, when more people use it, make it even more valuable for the next person to use it? Yes, that's exactly, that's the way to define network and network effect is the, the good, the object, the product, whatever it is, is more valuable to me as a user, the more other users there are of that thing. And so if you're the only person on Facebook it's useless, right? The point of Facebook is to communicate with other people. So the more other members of Facebook there are, the more useful Facebook is. That's a network effect. And then the platform is you would have network effects on both sides. So that would be it, staying with the Facebook example, you know, users on one side and advertisers on the other. Basically, Facebook is the platform that puts them together. Credit cards are another example of a platform market with network effects on both sides. You have the card holders who want to spend, use the card to spend it at merchants. And then you have the merchants on the other side that want to be able to accept the credit cards for payment from, from potential customers. And all of those things are, like you said, instances of the bigger is the network good, the bigger is the platform, uh, the more useful it is. And so it you get this sort of uh, positive feedback loop that can make firms really big and in some cases become monopolist dominance of a market. So Eric, does this not make it even more difficult for policymakers? Does this not kind of build an argument against taking sort of antitrust action against these big companies? 
or maybe even make it futile. Say you do something, you break them up, and then they again consolidate it into dominant, you know, Goliaths. Yes, I, I do think it makes it harder. The breakup point is an important one. I know many people advocate the breakup of Facebook or other uh, companies. And at least just saying in the abstract that there's a big company and we want to break it up into small companies, that's not really very helpful because if the network effects are strong enough, as you suggest, it just means that sometime in the future, uh, some other company will expand and take the place of the company that's broken up, or maybe one of its pieces will expand and take the place of the company that's broken up. But there may be ways to break up companies that aren't futile. And that's just going to depend. You know, all these companies are different. They're structured different. They operate in different markets. And the appropriate policy response is going to depend on on all those details. So I wanted to kind of like put both of you on the spot, as it were, for a little bit. What should a new administration do about these big tech companies? A new Justice Department coming in, inheriting these very big antitrust cases. What are the tools that you would consider reasonable deploying? And how urgent is it? Chad, you want to take this one first? Okay, so so what, what do I think? Because of network effects, you can have a product that is dominant, but people kind of hate, right? You, but, yeah. it, it, you know, it, just let's stick with Facebook since we've been talking about it. People might have enjoyed joining Facebook when they did, but if Facebook has gotten worse in some way, but there's no other way to communicate with all their Facebook friends, it's you can't really change over because of the, not one person can unilaterally leave a platform uh, because of the network effects. You'd lose all the benefits of it. And so you can get these sort of people stuck in a rut, customers stuck in a rut kind of cases that I think, you know, could even amplify the kind of harms that can come from market power. I I don't know whether that's happening for sure with Facebook, but I think this renewed attention towards the so-called killer acquisition mm-hmm. issue is is useful. Eric? I do think most of the big tech companies, or maybe even all of them, have engaged in antitrust violations, or at least engaged in actions that are harmful from a policy perspective. So I think the government is justified in in being aggressive about uh, bringing cases. But I I don't think the government should just adopt the stance of wanting to break up these companies or shrink them or something like that. I I think it has to take a more nuanced approach. Okay, so the first would be more investigations by the FTC and the Justice Department. Second, I would want Congress to pass laws or at least to begin deliberating about laws, two types of laws. One, which just makes it somewhat easier for people to bring antitrust cases against these companies. There are all kinds of hurdles. They're just practical difficulties in bringing antitrust cases by the victims of these companies. And you know, getting an anti- the antitrust cases going leads to discovery of, of, of information about what the companies are doing, which tends to improve the public debate and ultimately can lead to important remedies. And even a private lawsuit could lead, in theory, to a breakup of of some sort. So as I mentioned earlier, antitrust law has become narrower and, and, and more restrictive over the last few decades. I'd like to see Congress reverse that or, or, or the courts to do that themselves. And then lastly, I think Congress also has to do more deliberation about the tech industry and whether there are other appropriate tools for regulating it. 
does tech need to be regulated the way, you know, power companies are regulated or, or you know, factories that produce pollution? For example, just simple limits on what uh, a tech company could do. I am a little bit worried about their political impact. And one thing that I find troublesome is that, you know, Facebook, Twitter, initially people say they're conduits for Russian influence or they're just they just spread all kinds of false information. But then what what happens next? And, and what's really happened is people have more or less acquiesced in a system in which the companies themselves engage in effectively censorship of the speech on their platforms. And I don't know why these companies should have that power. Uh, and I'm not sure the government should have that power either, or maybe there are certain types of approaches that can be taken to to address this problem of, of, of how these tech companies affect the public debate. But but that's something I think that is, is more urgent because I do think it has had a, a negative impact on our political system and could get worse. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in this series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter.